Talking Books with Susan Cahill. This is News Talk. Every day of our lives, we're investing a lot of our stuff in the walls that surround us. Our, our whole attention is played out from the moment we wake on, on the bed, the, the way the curtains move, the shapes in the ceiling, all of these tiny details inform our take on the world. And, and then something goes wrong, something goes badly wrong. So in a sense, we associate what's gone wrong with the surroundings that we've had. And maybe by moving somewhere else, there's a sense of making a, a fresh start, wiping it clean, because that, that building has become us. We, we, have, we in the building have exchanged our molecules like uh, Flanner Bryan's third policeman and his bicycle. We've, we've just become part of each other. And that's, that's something that's interesting in life. And I think we all have it, whether we acknowledge it or not. In my own case, I've been, been in the same house now for more than 50 years. And, and it would feel very, very weird to step away from it, the good things and the bad things that have happened within a house. That, that, that's all, that's all like, would be like sort of stepping out of my body to, to, to leave it. It would become a dream to be somewhere else. One can choose to live in a place as a sort of visitor. The perceptive words of American poet, essayist and environmental activist Gary Snyder. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. What is a city? And how does the built environment and the structures that surround us impact on our health, our creativity and our sense of well-being? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to explore those questions with Welsh writer, filmmaker and journalist Ian Sinclair, whose latest book, Living with Buildings and Walking with Ghosts, on health and architecture, has just been published by Profile Books, where Ian writes, It is our melancholy fate as higher animals to carry our ills while searching for somewhere to plant them. Ian goes on to state, Even the dying obey the instinct to crawl into some root shelter but they are only hiding from their own parlousness. So, is a building more than just a building? And what is the relationship between the built environment and mental health? My name is Ian Sinclair, uh, which, as you can tell, is a, a Scottish name in origin, but my, my father's family came to South Wales. He was, he was a doctor, a general practitioner. I grew up in South Wales, therefore. And as soon as I could, really, the place I wanted to get to was London. London always haunted me as being the, uh, the fount of all, all culture. And from a Welsh point of view, too, it was a, a place important in Welsh mythology as the, the head of Bran the Blessed, the giant was supposedly, having come across the Irish Sea, was, was buried in London at White Mount. So London was where I wanted to come to. And I guess my career in writing has been defined by concentrating on the subjects of London as an organic and mythical entity, that I had a period in the 1970s where I worked as a gardener in the parks of East London and down along the river. And at that point, cutting the grass around Nicholas Hawksmoor churches, I began to look at these structures and, and wonder whether there was a connection between them and what was the meaning of these buildings. And that started me off really on, on the whole process of uh, forging my own take on the city in homage to, obviously, people like Blake and Dickens and De Quincey and Arthur Macken, 
who had wandered London for so long, looking at the city as a labyrinth. So I became a writer with a mixture of prose and poetry, drawing on predecessors like William Carlos Williams and Charles Olson in America. Um, after a while, in the Thatcher period, uh, politics in the same territory had become very occulted, and the building programs were, were becoming fairly ferocious in the way that they erased much history. And I started to write Gothic fictions about that, including the book Down River. In the 90s, I, I started writing non-fiction books, essays based on the form of walking. And most of what I've done since has related to this process of walking and questing. And the most recent recent book I've done is called um, Living with Buildings and Walking with Ghosts. It's quite an important subtitle. And the book, the book is based around an exhibition which is currently running at the Welcome Collection on Euston Road in London and will be there for a, a month or so still. Um, and it's an exhibition, a sociological exhibition about the nature of buildings and health and the relation between them. And my own book starts with that, but then wanders off in its own direction. Really well done on the booking. I have to say it was a fascinating read. What's so interesting was how you illustrate through a whole range of different buildings and pieces of architecture, you know, just the power of buildings and how the built environment shapes our lives, can shape our imaginations, can impact on our health and well-being. The extraordinary effect of architecture in our lives. I might um, throw you a big wide open question to kick things off and sure we can take it from there. Do you think it's possible to walk all your problems out? Do you think just by walking that you can kind of figure things out, whatever on your mind, whatever troubling you, that you can walk through a city and just if things will come together? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I was in um, Santiago in Chile. and I was in the pre-Columbian Museum and I was fascinated to see a room that was arranged north to south, topographically, culture to culture, right down this room. And the final thing was a series of figures, walking figures that were placed on, on top of the graves of notable characters in the tribe. And uh, the, but the ones that were most famous were, were put with their faces to the east as if to walk out into the eternity of the ocean. And the, the ones who had not done so well were looking west, which is where I often look, and they were, they were going to have to tramp across difficult country. And I think that, that walking defines a life. I think it defines your relation with the earth, the natural breathing, the natural patterns of observation, how we look up at a 60 degree angle and take in the, the tops of smaller buildings, how we notice things around us and how the process of walking becomes a narrative and ultimately becomes a form of autobiography. And I think as you can walk less in distance, then the world draws in towards you and you begin to move backwards into memory. So what is architecture for you? How do you understand it? Because some people would kind of crudely look at, you know, whether it's a building and they just see it as, you know, bricks and mortar. Others will see the, I suppose, human narratives, human stories and the relationships that have thrived or failed in a particular building or a home or a gallery or whatever it is. So it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So how would you define architecture in the built environment? Well, I think architecture is intervention. You know, the, the city I've described is is, um, is a topography. The city is essentially its own geology. It's where it is. It's because of the rivers, because of the landforms around it. 
And then when architecture arrives, it's a, it's a mature human process. It's a process initially of just giving shelter for people who move. Do you describe the, the caves that they come into? Do you describe the, the tents or yurts that they build for themselves as architecture? I don't think so. I think there's a, there's a secondary stage where um, architects start to think of themselves as artists and later then as um, developers and promoters of a city, until you come to somebody like Sir Christopher Wren after the Great Fire of London, when London is leveled, it's a moment when the architect becomes important because for the first time the architect is called upon to create a new city. And so that pattern of intervention is what's run on uh, up to the present moment. And some of these interventions have been very crude and very ugly and very wrong, uh, forms of human stacking into into um, tall buildings that have often been not well kept up, not well specified in the materials they use, shortcuts taken, until you end up with a disaster like the Grenfell Fire. Yeah, it struck me as I was progressing through your book that, you know, don't underestimate the power of urban planning, architects, city planners, whatever they are, because they really have the power to shape our imaginations, our health, um, our whole lived experience of the world and possibly some of the questions that we're asking ourselves. Like you trace a very powerful story in the book on human health and well-being, but it's something that possibly has been underestimated, hasn't it? Yeah, I think it has. And I, th- I think there have been periods, you know, like just after the Second World War, that the government really took on these questions in, in a serious way, you know, as to what could be done in terms of housing and health. And there, there was a provision of uh, outdoor swimming pools and Lido's, that parks suddenly got more money, um, green belts were created, spaces around the city. And I think developments like one of the ones I write about is this uh, Golden Lane estate, which was a precursor of the Barbican estate, which is on the edge of the city of London. And I think those estates really worked. They they were relatively low-level estates. They were well-supplied. They had their swimming pools. They had their tennis courts. They, They looked in on a kind of large central area, which was protected from the street at large, but had access to the street. They were porous. And they were they were very careful about the sunlight that they got, for example. And now at the moment, that's sort of being unpicked because enormous developments in the city are completely overshadowing these estates. And so that the estate, which which became a community because it was on the right scale, is being under underwritten all the time and got at, you know, rubbed at by the by the forces of global capital. Can I throw you a philosophical question, if you don't mind? Do you think cities are places of well-being? Like um, when you walk around London and you you mentioned Santiago and, you know, the book brings us to Guadalajara in Mexico. But, you know, do you think they are? Because you can go through these beautifully designed spaces. You can go into wild spaces within cities and so on. But dependent on the time of day, dependent on your mood, dependent on what's going on, sometimes it can be very um, aggressive spaces, very threatening spaces because the pace of life is so accelerated. Yeah, I think a city is like a, like a human being. I mean, a, a city, cities get sick, and cities pick up on contagion. C- cities uh, were in the medieval period. Cities were places that that um, the plague would take hold. They didn't take hold so easily in the in the small villages. The, the plague moved out from from the city to the village, but the city was always the generator of ill health. 
But within itself, as a, as a psychic entity, the, the city can give you enormous energy. The city is about energy, and health is an aspect of energy. I think people feel invigorated by being in the mass movements of the city and having access to great cultural hubs and to the, the sort of sense of uh, adventure and excitement of coming in and making new lives. London in particular has been constantly reinvigorated by the various peoples that have come here. I mean, in the end of the 19th century, there was no requirement to have a passport or papers to arrive in this place, which is why someone like Joseph Conrad, great, the great Polish writer, arrives in London because he's fed up with all the paperwork he needs to join the Merchant Marine in France. And so, so London at that time was on the surface um, a place of enormous energy, but it was also very unhealthy uh, in its cracks and crannies because of the the sheer push of wealth against poverty. So that the the ghettos and the the corners and the poor of the, the world were were in a pretty wretched state. But at the same time, the uh, the the wealthy, the middle classes, were were thriving and booming. And those kind of balances of health are always an argument that never ends, and every city has to engage with it all of the time. Ian, you mentioned a very interesting uh, writer in the book, um, a guy called Meads, and he stated something on the lines to you that we are controlled by b- 